0: So we're in a series about salvation. Um, I'm going to dive right in. I'm going to tell you tonight might be a little bit difficult because we've got to read a lot of scripture. Some of you have been asking on your cards, how do I know that I'm saved? Well, if you get bored reading scripture with me tonight, that's probably an indication something's wrong. How's that? (laughs) I was just thinking of a good litmus test. So if you think this is long and there's just too many scriptures, maybe you're not saved. So you have to get up and do squats or something to stay, remain engaged, and saved? That's OK. You can do that. Let me show you what I mean by dive right in. Last week, we ended right here. We ended looking at all the different components that go into salvation. And I cautioned that at least this ordering of salvation is what a Calvinist would put forward. We're going to be looking at other people's orders. But the more important part was there were so many pieces of salvation. The question on the card that had haunted me all last week and the week before that was, why does it have to be so complicated? I don't know how to say it other way than the scriptures seem to have so many facets to salvation and we always understand maybe one or two of them. I was listening this week to different people kind of musing about salvation. Then I did some research and I was just trying to think of like, could we simplify it? Here's what somebody said about how to make it simple. This is a website about how to be born again. It says Jesus came to make salvation as easy as he possibly could. And that's why the religionists crucified him. That's why they killed him, because the church system of the day said it couldn't be done without them, without all of their laws and traditions and religious rigmarole. But Jesus came and showed them that they didn't have to go to church on Sunday, or Saturday, or Friday, or any other day of the week they didn't have to follow the church laws and rules and regulations or the ten commandments or all the rest all they had to do was simply confess that they were sinners and needed salvation ask jesus to give it to them wow i wish it could be that simple like there is a part of us that wants it to be just that simple and i want to be very clear maybe it is that simple for one aspect of salvation maybe it's that simple for some of the things we're going to be talking about that lead to justification, that one part of salvation that we think of when we ask somebody like, when were you saved? Like if there was a moment in time of salvation, maybe it's there. This person goes on in the same thing and says, the whole idea is so simple and so childlike that Jesus said, you have to become a little child to enter the kingdom of God because his spiritual kingdom is, is of love and joy and happiness here and now it's simple. That's why you have to be like a child. In our study of Matthew, we kind of debunked the idea of that's what Jesus meant by being like a child. Uh, I told you last week, salvation could be so simple if you just never read the scriptures. Then if you just listened to the formula or read it off of a track, it would be very simple. And the difficulty is there are so many things that are complex and yet beautiful about salvation. This is one of those places where the complexity doesn't make us glaze over, it actually just helps us to see how beautiful God's plan of salvation is. So why are we breaking it down into all these pieces? Why does anybody need to know this? Maybe you could even ask it just personally to you. Why do you need to know this? Like, who cares? Maybe we're just saved and that's okay and I don't need to know all the different facets. And like many things, I would tell you it's the same reason that I always look at anything from a more complex perspective. One, uh, there are people that will ask you questions and maybe you'd like to answer them correctly, or at least when they bring a scripture that says, you know, I hear what you're saying, but what about this? You'll at least be able to fit it somewhere and explain how it all works together. Maybe. The other thing is, whenever we make simple formulations, they hold for a while. But then when the storm kinda comes, or when the crisis comes, and we're really looking at it, somehow it just all starts to fall apart. And we see that a lot. So, Whether you believe it or not, whether you believe it should be complicated or not, what I'm going to do tonight is actually focus in this area, and next week, Morgan's going to take sanctification. So we're actually looking here. I'm going to try to do the things that come very close together, regeneration, conversion, justification, and adoption. And another word you're going to see me use for conversion is faith. So what I'm going to try to do tonight is just show you Where do we even get the idea that there's that many facets of salvation? I mean, did we just want to invent a 12-sided die? Is that what we were trying to do? Like it would just be fun to have more facets? Or are these really found in scripture? So that's all I'm going to do tonight, is I'm going to show you a couple things about regeneration, about faith, about justification, about adoption. And feel free to push back on a couple of them, or give me some of your insight or questions. Let's start with regeneration. What is it? Regeneration is really that part of salvation where God takes us from being spiritually dead and makes us spiritually alive. Now I want to tell you that if you are in the Calvinist camp, this is something God does all by himself. He does it to us. He decides that we are spiritually dead, that we are called, and he's going to regenerate us just to allow us to have a spiritual life that we might be able to respond in faith. That without it, we couldn't do it. You're going to see when I end tonight that if you take a different perspective, this comes a little bit later in the order. But more importantly, let's just talk about what it is. God promised in the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36 that he was going to put a new spirit in us. That he was going to give us his spirit and that it would give us life. That's kind of the basis of regeneration. And see how it gets picked up in the New Testament. I'm going to read from Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace. You have been saved. What's regeneration? You're dead. and He makes you alive spiritually so that you can actually move to that next component of salvation. This is what we mean in scripture when we read things that come from the birth analogy, like born again. You know, we hear those words so much that we think born again signifies a moment you made a decision. But actually a more interesting way to understand it in a more correct way is to see it as you are born again and this is why those words stumped Nicodemus when he first heard them here are just some examples when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus he says to him very truly I tell you no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again somebody could say look at those words carefully you can't even see the kingdom you can't have a chance to move forward in salvation until you are born again maybe to kind of shake the born again language out of our minds until you're birthed again. Until you're birthed anew. So you're dead. You need to be rebirthed spiritually just to even have a chance. In James 1 8, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. In Colossians, when you were dead in your sins, And in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. Dead, alive. There's the contrast again. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. The Calvinist perspective would say, you see, nobody can even come unless the Father draws them to this kind of regeneration. Yes? My only question is, is regeneration happening in order before faith, or is that the
1: moment of faith? I mean, I see the drawing, obviously the drawing would come before, so I, I, that, that, makes sense. I'm just wondering, it seems like the other ones, you
0: could almost just
1: push them together and say regenerate and faith are happening at the
0: same time. So most people believe they're happening very close together or instantaneously. And by the way, if you were to take all four that I'm talking about today, somebody could say they could all happen in an instant. But they would still say that one happened slightly before the other. The big debate, as you'll see at the very end, is does faith happen first and then regeneration, or does regeneration happen and then faith? You might think, well, what does it matter? They're all happening instantaneously. But it matters because the person who comes from a Calvinist perspective is saying, God makes your heart alive. And if he doesn't do that, you have no chance to move forward. The Armenian view says, no, once you put your faith in Christ and you are in Christ, that is what regenerates you and moves you forward. Your first step is to become in Christ. Right? So they would cite Ephesians 1.13 very heavily, that everything's about being in Christ. You're made alive when you're in Christ. right? And by the way, you go back to this, they might even cite, that's why even in Ephesians 2, he made us alive with Christ. right? That's where you become alive when you're in Christ. And how do you get in Christ? By having faith in Christ. That would be their view. It's, you might say again, I don't care about... Which order happens, because I'm not concerned yet about did God call and elect all people. We're getting to that in a couple of weeks. More important part probably is just we don't even think of regeneration. Like we don't actually think of it as a step in anything. We think it's just about faith. And there's this part where our heart cannot even know God unless we become spiritually alive. The question is just which happens first? Soren. I
1: think I've always struggled with this because being raised in a Christian home and always always believing, and even even a lot of friends that were raised in a Christian home would talk about a time where like, their faith became real or it became their own, and I, I really can't point to, I mean, I feel like I have at times just to appease people, but I really can't point to a specific time where it was like, this is when I spiritually did, this is when I didn't know Jesus and now, and this is what I did, so I've always had a hard time with that.
0: So both traditions would say that faith can increase. Right, But if you took a strictly like Calvinist view, they would say, God, because you were elect and and he had called you and you were appointed to be saved, there was a moment when he made your heart alive to then have faith, which is going to increase over time. But the more important part is it's almost like a gateway. Had he not done that, you wouldn't be able to even put your faith in Christ. But even the other view would say, when you put your faith in Christ in any way, at that moment, You went from being dead to alive. And so many people report a gradual development of their faith. They don't point to a single moment. But theologically, they'll say, almost everyone says there is a moment when God is working with you. And yes, of course, there's a tradition that says regeneration happens over time. But most people believe it's kind of like the difference between dead and alive. It's like a switch has been turned because of one of those things, right? Uh, So to say it plainly, even if you didn't notice it or feel it, they would say, it's happened. Right? Even if you can't say, but there was a moment where I raised my hand and said, I'm in. Or a decision was made in my heart. I'm in. It still happened. Because the scripture tells us that our hearts go through this. That God does this. That this is part of what must happen. Okay? Some of you asked about, again, how do I know about salvation? This is just a small taste. This is not the answer. This is just a small taste. But it has to do with regeneration. In fact, if you read 1 John, a lot of this is about knowing. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, 1 John 5.1. So one way that you know that regeneration has taken place, that you have been born again, born into God's family here, is that you know that Jesus is the Christ. That's his test. So. Whether you started to know a little bit and grew over time, as Soren was indicating, or you just had this immense conviction all at once, that's one of the ways that you know, according to first John. This quote might bug you. This this quote. This verse <laughs> I didn't write it, but you should at least look at it because it talks about what it means to be regenerated. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning. Because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's children, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. When was the last time anybody preached on that passage? (laughs) Feel okay to you? Some of you want to know. Yeah. I mean,
2: I'm obviously not a Christian. Like, <laughs> how do you, are you like supposed to interpret this based on like an absolute ideal way? Like, is that the way that John writes? Or like.
0: I'll tell you, the book of 1 John is a tough book because it contains things that I think most of us living in our time, in our way that we look at the world, probably, you know, they're, they're bracing. Let's say some of these verses are bracing. Uh, of course, we're going to continue sinning. By the way, the reason I know that even John knows that is because 1 John 1, 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful, right? And he will purify us. And if you look at 1 John 1, uh, eight through 10, he's actually dealing with the issue of what happens when the believer sins, the believer. So he is not trying to draw just a line, but there is something very interesting going on here. He's saying that when you're born of God, that you will not continue to sin. He may be making a reference here to the the old man, new man that Paul talks about, where there's our old nature and our new nature that's fighting within us. And he would actually be saying that the new nature cannot sin. The old nature does sin. And maybe until we're completely glorified in the future and saved from all the effect of sin and even the presence of sin in our life, that's the time when we'll be completely out of it. But it is still, if you just read it there on its own, it's still a pretty bracing verse that you have to take into consideration of, do I believe that you can just be saved and just continue to do anything you want? There's lots of verses that Paul offers. This one's from John that's you know, pretty sober. This is very interesting, though, when he talks about God's seed remains in them. Uh, The Greek word there is sperma, right? This is literally about the making of a new person that God and you somehow are creating a new you, the way it comes together. This is a very deep passage that we just don't have the time to spend and go into, but it is just something for some of you who say like, what's some of the things that I would use to test how I'm doing? This is one of such passages that you might want to look at, but it's not meant to ever say you cannot sin and be a Christian. That's not the intention. It is saying, though, you are, you are deciding on which of those two things inside of you, the old person or the new creation, you know, the, old, the old is past, you know, the new is supposed to be, um, we're tending to favor our sinful nature. And that has at least an impact, according to John. In fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. The born language is there again. What is he saying? Well, first of all, how many of us think of love for God as obeying him? I mean, that's good. It's good that some of you keep that. Like if you say, how do I love God? Like what is love for God? Well, John would say, he he says it repeatedly, (laughs) that it's obedience is a way that we show love for God. But those who are born of God can overcome the world. Another way to look at that is people who are born of God, who are regenerated, have been given the power to fight temptation and to overcome things and not give in so often. That's another way that we deal with it. So these are difficult. These are the ones that make it seem like, wow, that's not quite as easy as I thought it was. Yes?
2: I don't know if this is right wrong. Maybe you could tell me the language. Is there something specific in the language that we know for a fact that that means we are no longer capable to sin, like that, we cannot physically sin, like the way that Jesus could not sin. Because the way I kind of have always interpreted that is sure, there are things we kind of do, we slip up almost accidental, whatever. But like, when you're really aware, you realize you know later and you repent or whatever. But when you're really aware, like, here's the right thing, here's the wrong thing, God is in me, I'm going to choose. You want to do the right thing, and you shouldn't, if you really have God, want to continue to sin and continue to choose to do these things you know are wrong. Like, no one that really has faith and has God in them says, I don't care about that, so I'm just going to keep doing it. And, like, I don't care. So that doesn't make sense to me. So it would make sense that you wouldn't continue to choose that on purpose, even if you make mistakes, I guess, is sort of.
0: Well, that verse does say they cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. It's, it's actually saying that they're incapable of sinning. That's why it's such a difficult passage to interpret. But the best one I've seen is the new creation cannot continue to sin. It's
2: like a dual nature within our bodies. It's like, I don't understand
0: that. Because Paul says to us, put off the old self, put on the new. He wouldn't even be making a command like that if there weren't this thing. We're in the middle part now. God's nature in you cannot sin, and that is being brought to fruition. That part is growing. That's what God's seed in you is is bringing to fruition.
1: Yeah, I think I I feel like I see lots of Christians, and myself, the first of them, their are times of willful disobedience. I mean, I, I would be shocked to hear that I only make mistakes. I never willfully go. Here's God's command. I did something different. I see what you want, God. I'm not doing it. I mean, I know I do that, so. Yeah.
0: If there's any part of us where we can choose not to sin, that's what it means to put on the new self and take off the old. Okay, It's regeneration. Let me move to the next one. Faith. So in this formulation that we're following, God regenerates and that allows us to respond in faith. Many people look at faith Try to understand, like, what is it? I heard Morgan a couple of weeks ago say, like, no, we need to understand it's like a trusting faith. It's not enough to have just a belief or an intellectual assent to something. All right, a couple of key verses that say that. Like James 2.9 says, you believe that there is one God, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So just knowing something intellectually doesn't seem to be enough. Even knowing it actually, like the demons know, it's probably not good enough. Here's an interesting quote from Nicodemus who probably later became a believer, but when he first approached Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. It says in John 3, 2, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God. No one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with them. But at that time, Nicodemus was still not a believer. He was still not born again. In fact, the whole conversation that Jesus gives him is how to be born again, because he's not born again. But look, he could know that Jesus is a good teacher, that he comes from God, that he has all these signs. Still not enough. So, what would be enough? It might surprise you that I'm going to put up John 3.16. Because it seems so simple in its formulation. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The key, though, I think, to understanding faith in this passage is believe in him. Not just believe him but believe in him. Actually the right, the best literal translation would be believe into him, which sounds a lot like what Paul spends most of his letters writing to us about, about being in Christ, like trusting our life so much that our life becomes one with Christ, just throwing in our whole lot with Christ, just throwing it all in all on Christ. So not just kind of a belief by itself, but believing into him, putting our whole trust in him. And faith also seems to imply that there's a need for repentance. Look at these verses that deal with that. When the listeners to the Pentecost sermon asked Peter what they should do, he said, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You need to repent. You need to change the way that you are thinking. Change the way you are also acting. Repentance is part of the faith formula in many key verses. I didn't put them all. I just brought three of them. Here's another one. Romans 2, 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And Paul later says in 2 Corinthians 2, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Worldly sorrow brings death. Repentance is meant to lead to salvation. It's part of our step of faith. So believing with a belief that puts our full trust in everything we have into Christ and repenting from the ways that we previously thought about everything and maybe even, of course, in our actions as well. That's faith. Comments? It's hard to argue with Bible verses, I know. Morgan.
1: So are you distressing the <laughs> aspect of repentance as a sign that faith is how it goes through the essentially?
0: That faith should produce repentance. But some formulations, to be honest, will say that faith and repentance are both required. Right? That the saving faith requires the trust of putting your whole life into Christ or to be all in and repent of what you previously thought and what you previously were. That's part and parcel of faith. Like, so it's more than just this intellectual ascent. It's more than just knowing that Jesus is really from God. It's you putting your faith and leaving the past behind and putting everything into Christ going forward. And repentance is really looked at way. You're just cutting off the past and moving forward with Christ. And that's the part of throwing your whole lot in with Jesus. Okay? Justification. What is it? That's the place where Christ... Because of his sacrifice, we're declared to be righteous. Where do we get that idea? We just make it up. Comes right out of Romans. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Justification is that place where you are declared righteous because of what Christ has done. Because of Christ's work on the cross, because of his resurrection, because of his taking all the sin upon himself, because of him, it's imputed to you and you are declared righteous. Or, you could look at Romans 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's because we've been justified through faith that we have peace with God. We were enemies of God. Now we have peace with God. We've been made righteous in his sight. It's about your sins being forgiven, but it's more than that. It's about the idea that you're now declared to be righteous. And Romans 8.1. Therefore, there's no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One of the questions on the cards asked, what is the role of faith and works? And everybody, of course, knows that this is the issue that comes from James, right? So let's see if you guys can solve it with me. In James chapter 2, this is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. As with the body, without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Anyone want to help me out with this one? Because we just finished reading that it's through faith, and this is the classic problem that everybody keeps going through. So yes,
2: I feel like when you have faith and you truly believe in in God, you have a relation, an established relationship with God, then um, your deeds will automatically fall into place. It'll be something that happens. You'll 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 start exhibiting the fruits of the spirit. You'll start living a life that is more closely aligned with God, and and deeds won't be that hard. It won't. It, it's they go hand in hand so you can't have one without the other.
0: Okay, but Paul just said you're justified by faith alone. And if you look at this very last line, almost, the second to last line, says you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Yes?
2: Um, I think uh, we talked about this in one of my classes, and I, I thought it was that um, when Paul is talking about it, He's referring to um, the Jewish Christians that were wanting to say that you had to follow all of these laws. But he's responding to that by saying you don't need to follow all of those laws. So, but here, um, writer of James, he's not. He's talking about something different. He's talking about how your faith and your works shouldn't be separate. but it's something different context.
0: Okay. Sorry.
1: It makes me think of just a common phrase when people say it's the thought that counts. And really what they mean by that is it's the thought behind the action that counts. Because if it's, I thought about giving you a gift, but I didn't do anything, like that doesn't count for anything. But if I give you a gift and it's not what you wanted, it's the thought that counts because it's the thought behind the action. I mean, the thought without the action is nothing.
0: Okay. it's good. Abby?
2: But what if, like, you're on the other side of it and it's, like, just the action or, like, just the deed? Does that (coughs) ascribe you faith? Like, because you're doing these deeds? And so, like, it's easy for us, like, being, I guess, like, on the Christian side of it to be like, oh, yeah, like, our faith, and then we'll go and do deeds. But, like, (coughs) people that do deeds, what does that say about their faith? Or, like, how can you interpret this that way?
0: Yeah, James nowhere says deeds alone, but the question is just whether you need deeds in addition to faith to be justified. And he seems to say in this passage, at least it seems, and I put seems in quotes, that that's what he's saying. Did you have a comment? I was wondering if there was just a bit of a, not not quite a language issue, but how each are conceptualizing faith, because I think there could be an understanding of, like faith, faith is doing, or like the faithing as a verb kind of a thing. So you wouldn't talk about faith and deeds separate if they are one. Whereas if in James it's conceptualized a little different, you would differently you would talk about each component. Okay. Let me state it this way so that we bring these comments to, together. The reason this question came up on your cards, and the reason people ask it all the time, is because we'd like to say it this way. Deeds are the evidence that you have faith. That sounds good, right? Paul would agree with that. He says that, right? Like you will, you will, you are saved by faith alone. But then he goes on in Ephesians 2, verse 10 to say, but because you're saved, then you are saved to do good deeds, right? Like we like to see that. Or we want it to be the evidence. Like there it is. You see the way that I know is these good deeds. But the trouble has always been that way. Line Because Paul is saying, you're justified by faith alone. And James is saying, a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. Jess said, maybe the language is troubling us with faith. Actually, I think the language troubles us with the word justify. Because justify actually has two meanings that we use commonly. One is to be declared righteous by an act of judicial declaration. Like God has said, you are righteous because your faith is in Christ. You are in Christ, so you are declared righteous. The other meaning, which is also used commonly, it's even used in the New Testament quite frequently, is to show that you are righteous. To evidence the righteousness. If you look very carefully, what is he talking about to begin with? He's talking about what good is it if you have faith but no deeds? What evidence that faith without deeds is useless, do I need to show you? He's actually kind of describing that kind of justification to begin with. So when he says, you see that a person is justified, he's basically saying, you see that a person shows their righteousness. It's not the same thing as the declaration of righteousness that only God can give. This is the way you show it. And one of the ways that we know that is look at the example he gives. There's a reason that in this, verse, I've actually put together these two passages. I inserted them as kind of, you know, almost like they're inserted into the text. That's not in the scriptures. I put them in there. He's giving the example of Abraham. And he says that Abraham was considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son. That's in Genesis 22. And if you didn't know the rest of it, you just kept reading, it says the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But when did that happen? When was that fulfilled in scripture? It was fulfilled in Genesis 15, 6. If I'm being cryptic, here's what it means. Even James is acknowledging that Abraham believed and became righteous. And later, seven chapters later, he then does this act and shows it. So even the example demonstrates that belief, faith, is what brings us to be righteous. And later, Abraham shows his righteousness through the action. That means that the faith alone and the faith and deeds debate is actually kind of a false debate. Okay, last part, adoption. These passages should be familiar to you. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. That's Romans 8, 15 to 17. So we didn't just make up the idea that we just get adopted into God's family. This is the actual teaching, right, that Paul is trying to make sure that everybody understands. Not just adopted, but heirs. We have a great future ahead. Also in Ephesians. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us, for what? To be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. In accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance as sons and daughters, and the Holy Spirit, one of his roles, as you remember from our previous series, is to act as that guarantee, and to seal us for that adoption. All of those things going on in adoption. What I was trying to demonstrate with these verses is to show that, you know, when we say that there are these different components or facets of salvation, It's because we're reading all these verses thinking all these things have some part to play in what we call salvation, very simply. We give it a short name. And yes, as some of you said, of course, we've been tempted to simplify it. I've been tempted to simplify it. Can I be honest with you? (laughs) When I look at all this, I think, what's the point again? I mean, imagine if you were going to do some sort of evangelistic outreach and show them that list I had on the first page. Go, okay, now, in a few moments, I'm going to ask you to come down to the field. Uh, and as you do, I've made a little card for you that tells you all the 12 things that you need to do. <laughs> like, that, it just wouldn't happen. But have we made it too simple? Like, in our, in our honest and well-intentioned efforts to try to bring as many people to Christ Did we take a few shortcuts and ignore a bunch of verses somewhere along the line to make it palatable? In the early church, if you look at the way that they made disciples and brought people into the church, it was an arduous process. It was not something simple. I don't know. I'm not saying that we have to always do it that way. But I do at least know why it is that so many of us are a little bit surprised when you see all the verses and how they start to stack up. So tonight we are just looking at four things and let me show you just the differences I said I would. Most people believe this happens instantaneously or very close together. I've put up on the screen the two kind of views. There are others that I might bring in. But for now, just focusing on this part, a Calvinist would say you are regenerated first because God is doing it. And God is only regenerating those. He's only making those spirit alive in those people, bringing you to spiritual life that he intends to save. And once that happens, you have an opportunity then to put your faith in Christ. Strong Calvinists would say you're almost compelled to do it. You have no choice. It's irresistible, as some would say, that his call is so strong that having been made alive, you will put your faith in Christ and you will repent. You'll put all your trust in him And that will lead to justification and adoption. Notice that the Arminian view also looks at justification and adoption exactly the same way. Their only quibble would be, well, it's a big quibble. It's been a 250-year quibble probably uh, that they've been arguing over this back and forth. And people come from all sides. But their difference would be, you know what? Christ's offer of salvation was made to everyone, to all people. And any who put their faith in Christ, that trusting, repentant faith in Christ, are then going to be regenerated. That is the thing that brings them alive. Why? Because once you're in Christ, you are alive. Your life comes because you're in Christ. They would reverse the order. You're going to have to probably decide which one you believe more. Especially in a couple weeks when we get to your big question, which is how do I know if I'm saved? Lose your salvation. It'll depend on which camp you're in here, uh, and it may lead you to like one part of the answer and dislike the other. Which is why nobody likes the answers, right? Because the people who love the idea that we have choice and we can choose, those are the people who believe that you can also choose to walk away and lose your salvation. Yes,
2: I'm questioning the adoption part, and um, maybe just it's wording, but. The first thing that came to mind was like the contrast with the regeneration and how like regeneration is all about you being birthed into Christ's family, and this is more like you're being adopted into Christ's family. And I just want to know how you address kind of like is that saying the same thing? Like, are you birthed into His family? or Are you adopted into His family? And like, does that have different ramifications?
0: It's a good question. The born language is really not meant to be born into His family. It's meant to be born as in you're alive. So all of that kind of born language is really meant to be going from death to life, right? You are spiritually alive because you've been born again. And the adoption is what the spirit does to testify that we really are part of his family and to act as our deposit inheritance. Now, because they happen so close together, uh, somebody could say, who cares? Some people ask questions like, Who's involved in regeneration? Who's doing that? Is it the Father? Is it the Spirit? There's some evidence for both. Even in adoption, it's mostly the role of the Spirit, but there's some indication that it's also the Father. But they are different only because of that. uh, Because that birth language is really more about us being made alive. And being able to have a heart that, in the Calvinist view, could see God and have faith in him. Or the other way, because of our faith in Christ, we're now spiritually alive and then later adopted, seconds later, okay? Anything else? Thank you for, for, for getting through all that because I think it's really important that we see that you know, these things aren't just formulations of some theologian in a book somewhere, that these are really somebody's efforts to look at scripture and order them in a way that goes, what do we do with all these verses and what do we do with salvation? Next week, Morgan is gonna walk us through sanctification, just one thing. Right, Just one thing. But a very important thing because it's the thing we're all involved in. And so next week we walk through that and understand how it is that we're going through life to become more and more like Christ. you will explain that. And then when we come back, we'll have the knockdown drag out over does God really pick people from the beginning or not. Mm-hmm. All right? Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you safeguard our discussion so that we are spending our time finding more to be in awe of rather than to be repelled by. And I pray in confession before you, Lord, that I don't always feel that way. Sometimes, Lord, spending so much time in your word causes me to wonder. And I pray that your spirit be the one that actually gives us, strengthens our faith, brings us closer to understanding who you are and the wonder of this salvation that you've given to us. Lord Jesus, in the end, whether we get it or not, the beauty of it is that you have given us the opportunity and, Lord, you have paid the price and you have brought us to a place where we can be with you forever as sons and daughters. So, Lord, that may be the best news of all. is that for the people in this room, I thank you that we know who you are that we have put our faith in you from whatever way that has happened and that we look forward to eternity together and with you as heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Pray this in your name. Amen.